Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Alexander Robel. He's an assistant professor, part of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology. I'm going to talk about his research. Alexander, thanks for coming. Great. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah. Tell me a bit about your background, and then we'll get into your current research. Sure. So I am uh, born and raised Floridian. Um, I grew up in Miami, Florida, sort of uh, raised uh, by a first generation immigrant uh, to the United States from uh, Latin America. And really growing up, I had an interest in science uh, from an early age. And for me, what that looked like is I definitely had an interest in sort of nature and the natural world and you know, weather and uh, meteorology, that sort of stuff. Um, but I've always been very interested in sort of the, I would say, the puzzle um, that, are, that are problems that we encounter in nature. And so how do we explain natural phenomenon that we see in the real world? Um, and then how do we build ways for reliably explaining and predicting those phenomena? And so through really early part of my education, um, I went to a science magnet high school, public high school on the Miami public school system, uh, and then uh, went from there. So so that was where I really first encountered scientific research, where I had a sort of after school job at a, a NOAA federal laboratory that was uh, a half a mile walk from my school. Um, and that really got me into to scientific research. From there, I went on to, to Duke, um, where I was an undergrad and physics and earth sciences. And at that time, I still kind of entertained the possibility that I might do traditional physics. Um, but once I got more of a taste for uh, academic research um, in earth sciences, you know, I, I knew that that was the path that I wanted to take. Um, so after that, I, I so in undergrad, I had started doing research in, in oceanography um, 
and and hurricane meteorology, which was a, a bit more, let's say, suited to my background as being from Miami and having had a lot of childhood experiences uh, with with hurricanes, uh, Katrina, Andrew, Wilma, and many others. But there was sort of a serendipitous set of events that led me to a PhD advisor, Elliot Zipperman at Harvard, who works on a wide range of problems in climate science. And one of the problems that he was interested in um, at the time that I started my PhD was on um, how glaciers that are embedded within ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland, uh, why they flow fast and what could cause them to change the speed of their flow um, on time scales of sort of decades to centuries. And so that really started, you know, my engagement with glaciology, which is a sort of sub-discipline of earth sciences that where we study glaciers and ice and how they change while the climate changes. And from there, that's really what I've studied ever since. I would say in recent years, studying glaciers and ice sheets for me has also started to look more like, you know, what the effect of changes in glaciers and ice sheets is, right? And so when glaciers and ice sheets start to melt uh, or when the climate changes and, you know, how quickly do they start to melt? Um, and then how does that create problems for people in coastal communities like the one that I grew up in? Uh, in trying to plan for the future and, you know, trying to build resilient communities. So you focus on glaciers, what, from, uh, you know, that are next to the ocean, or do you focus on them from lakes, like freshwater ones or saltwater, or what's your, you know, or do you focus on all glaciers? I'm kind of a, a dilettante when it comes to glaciology in that I, I work on any problem, any scientific question having to do with glaciers and ice sheets. That's interesting to me. You know, some of that is, yeah, glaciers... Uh, like in Greenland and Antarctica or Alaska that are in contact with the ocean, those tend to be the biggest ones, right? And, and the ones that are changing the most quickly. Um, but I've also worked on the problem of melt on the surface of glaciers um, and uh, also what's going on um, beneath glaciers where they are in contact uh, with the solid or uh, with the ground. What are some of the differences between a glacier that, uh, you know, is next to the ocean? Is the, is the ice... Does it have a higher salt content, different structure than a freshwater one? Like, what are the major differences you've seen? Yeah, so the the content uh, or the the yeah the the sort of composition of glaciers um, is not that different between those that you know we call them land terminating glaciers. So terminate on land, and they they might terminate in a lake, um, but that's different than a glacier that terminates in you know the ocean, the salty ocean. Um, the composition is ultimately not that different, and that's because the composition of glacier ice is determined by the snow that falls on top of them. Um, and so this is uh, actually kind of backing up one major distinction is between what we call glaciers or ice sheets, uh, which are masses of ice that have formed due to snowfall pers or persistent snowfall over many, many thousands of years typically, in one location, and that snow over time piles up and compresses into ice. Um, and so the composition of glaciers and ice sheets then is really reflecting the composition of the snow that made them. And that is distinct from what we would call sea ice. Um, and so sea ice is um, the th relatively thin layer of ice that forms at the top of the ocean um, in winter, in the north near the north pole and around antarctica at the south pole right and so this is ocean water 
that has frozen in place uh, to turn into a layer of ice that's usually no more than you know uh, a few meters thick, right? And so glaciers and ice sheets can be many kilometers thick, right? Greenland and Antarctica—that's how how thick the, the ice sheets are there. Uh, but sea ice is is relatively thin, and so sea ice has a much saltier composition than glaciers and ice sheets, which are basically completely fresh and have very little salt content you know, inside them. Right, but if you have one that comes from snowfall that's right next to uh, you know, a salty body of water, does the salt wear it away very quickly because it's fresh and the salt water is salty or what happens? Yeah, so I, I think yeah, the difference between a glacier that is in contact with the ocean is basically that there are two ways for it to lose ice, right? So the warm atmosphere can always cause melting at the surface of ice sheets, whether they're on land or in contact with the ocean. Um, but glaciers that are in contact with the ocean, right, the ocean by definition is, at, uh, is, is warmer than the melting point of water, right? So if it was colder than that, then it would just turn into ice. Um, but that means that because ice in contact with the ocean is inherently colder than the ocean that it is in contact with, there is going to be a transfer of heat from the relatively warmer ocean to the ice. And so this is a, a major way in which heat is basically being transferred into ice and causing melting. And in particular, in places like Western Antarctica, where we've seen uh, a really large increase in the rate of ice loss uh, from glaciers over the last 30 or so years, almost the entirety of that increase in ice loss is due to changes in how much the or how quickly the ocean is melting the ice sheet. Um, whereas in Greenland, the increase in melting that we've seen over the last half century or so is almost equal parts due to changes in surface melting um, at the top of the ice sheet um, and due to changes in the rate of ocean melting of, of the ice sheet. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet, most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is, there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. I don't know, like, do you have to treat these two types of glaciers very differently or they're pretty much the same even though they're adjacent to different things? We tend to use the same models to model land terminating glaciers and ocean term or what we call marine terminating glaciers. Um, I would say the the big difference. So okay, when I talk about models, what I'm talking about is like computer models or numerical models, right? And again, backing up a little bit, the main thing that I work on and that my group works on is developing better computer models, which describe 
how glaciers respond to climate change uh, or and how the ice flows and how the ice breaks um, uh, in, in its natural environment. And so I would say the main distinction is there tend to be different models for the small glaciers that you find in mountainous regions in places like, you know, the, the Cascades and the Pacific Northwest of the United States um, or the, the European Alps or the Andes in South America or the Himalaya. Right. So these are what we would call mountain glaciers. Um, and these tend to be quite a bit smaller and mostly they do not terminate in the ocean. And so their main way of losing ice is through melting up the surface when the atmosphere gets warmer. Um, they also tend to have some you know, more complicated things going on with them because they're in mountainous environments. And so sort of have to take into account all the effects of like weather and climate in mountainous regions, which, which can be complicated. And so there's one set of models that are generally uh, used for these mountain glaciers. I, my group doesn't work on uh, those models as much. Um, but then um, there's a different set of models that are mostly intended for glaciers, the really big glaciers in places like Greenland and Antarctica, um, and which are coming to be, you know, now the largest, you know, contributors to, to ongoing sea level rise. Um, and so with these models, um, yeah, we have to take into account uh, what's called surface mass balance. So surface mass balance is basically the net rate at which ice is being added or taken away from the surface of the ice sheet, right? So snowfall in these regions is always adding more snow, which then over time compresses into ice, as I said before. But in warmer months, in summer months, or what we call the melt season, um, you know, the, the atmosphere temperature can be warm enough that it causes melting, right? So that process has to be taken into account. And we have to build a way for the computational models of glaciers to talk to uh, computational models of the atmosphere, right? To, you know, which which calculate things like the temperature of the atmosphere and humidity, et cetera. Um, but our models also have to take into account how these ice sheets and glaciers talk to the ocean, right? And also computational ocean models. You know, like I was saying before, ultimately the rate at which the ocean is melting glaciers and ice sheets has to do with the difference in temperature between the glacier and the ocean. And also the sort of how vigorous the ocean currents are at the interface between the glacier ice and the ocean. And so a few of the projects that my group is working on now is really focused on this question of the heat flux uh, between glaciers and the ocean, um, how we represent it in computational models, um, but also doing experiments like actual real experiments um, in, in the laboratory here at Georgia Tech. Um, with a collaborator of mine who, who is a fluid, uh, an experimental fluid mechanic, looking at the details, like the really fine scale details at like millimeter scale of how heat and salt are moving back and forth between salty water and glacier ice. Um, so these are all things that, you know, are taken into account in these models to varying degrees of success. <laughs> um, we know that some of these representations of these processes in these models sometimes doesn't quite reflect what's going on in the real world. And so we have plenty of work to do, you know, and, and plenty of uh, work for me and my students and my postdocs to be working on to try to improve how these computer models are doing in representing what's going on in the real world. Do glaciers create a, a microclimate around them? You know, do they have to be a certain size? And um, if so, what kind of microclimates do they create and how do they affect, you know, the air? 
and the land and the weather around them directly? Yeah, I mean, the answer is definitely yes. Um, and even at a small scale, so going back to these, you know, smaller mountain glaciers, you know, at a very basic level, if you paint the surface of the earth white, it reflects a lot more sunlight back out to space than if the surface is brown or green or, you know, something like that. So just having a glacier on the surface of the earth, right, that's immediately going to change how much energy the surface of the earth retains. As those glaciers start to change, and as, let's say, there starts to be more melt at the surface of those glaciers, then you get these melt ponds uh, that form at the surface of these glaciers, and that those melt ponds are darker and they absorb more solar radiation, right? So they very much affect, aren't just affected by the climate, but they also, yeah, affect the climate around them. They also just have very different sort of roughness properties, like that they're very different than the land that would be there if a glacier didn't exist. So the way that the wind moves over them um, is very different. Um, but in particular, in places where you get the really big glaciers or, you know, the ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland, right, you have these ice sheets, which are many kilometers thick. And it's sort of like building a mountain range that wasn't there, a relatively large, smooth mountain range that wasn't there. Now the wind has to flow over that mountain range, right, or that has to flow over that ice sheet. It is fluxing heat between the surface of that ice and, you know, the properties of how heat it moves between icy surfaces and sort of solid earth surfaces is very different, right? And also um, as things from the atmosphere start to get deposited on the ice to make it potentially darker than it would otherwise be, that also affects, again, how much solar radiation is being reflected by the icy surface. So there is a really complicated you know, and wide-ranging set of interactions between the whole climate system, but in particular the atmosphere um, and glaciers and ice sheets. Um, and so, you know, you you have to have a, a pretty good understanding, and, and that's kind of what our field is engaged in, you know, building our understanding, building the mathematical tools that we have to describe how climate affects glaciers, but also how glaciers and ice sheets affect the climate. Right? So it had long been the case in these big climate models that are used to project future climate change um, that they treated glaciers by like just painting the surface white. Um, so you just take your normal model and then you say, well, wherever there's a glacier or an ice sheet, we paint the surface white and then otherwise we don't really take that glacier and ice sheet into account. And now that glaciers and ice sheets are changing so quickly, you know, there's an increasing recognition that it is important to sort of include the effects, the, you know, the all the different kinds of effects of glaciers and ice sheets on the climate system and how those effects might change as glaciers shrink in size in order to get the climate right and in order to get sort of the climate of the future right. Um, what happens to glaciers during storms? Let's say it's like pouring rain. Does it really materially affect a glacier or is there so much of it that you now there's no, there's nothing that's noticed? And, you know, what events um, really break down glaciers and which ones build them up climatically? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. So um, it was really long thought that until maybe the last 10 or 20 years that glaciers did not care about weather. Right. And so when I when I say weather, I mean, yeah, like things that happen on time scales of less than a few months. And that, you know, glaciers were really just response. So the idea was that glaciers are just responding to these slow changes in climates over time scales of like years to decades to centuries. 
Um, and recently that has changed a lot. And partly that's because we have gotten so much better at, at observing and measuring, you know, what is happening at glaciers in real time. Uh, in faraway places like Antarctica and Greenland, but also there have been some pretty spectacular events that have been that have occurred since we have turned on our satellites in the late 70s, uh, and since we've gotten a lot better at measuring glaciers uh, in field expeditions. And so examples of that are actually just uh, last year there was uh, an event in East Antarctica, which is actually the part of Antarctica that is generally thought to be quite stable and unchanging, um, or historically that's how it was thought. Uh, and so in East Antarctica, there is this ice shelf, or there was this ice shelf called Conger Ice Shelf, and Conger has been stable and existing for, I think people think it's at least a few thousand years. And there was this atmospheric river event. Um, and so an atmospheric river, you know, people might be more familiar with them um, on like the West Coast of the United States, where atmospheric rivers bring um, a lot of rain and moisture and uh, warm, relatively warm temperatures to places like California, the Pacific Northwest and the Pacific Coast of Canada. Um, but atmospheric rivers are actually everywhere globally. Um, and they also affect Antarctica, right? So Antarctica is a place that, um, because it's surrounded by a kind of protective rim of sea ice um, and the Southern Ocean, tends not to get a lot of warm air coming from lower latitudes, from mid-latitudes of the equator. And But these atmospheric rivers basically can kind of penetrate this protective shield um, of the Southern Ocean and bring quite warm temperatures and um, a lot of uh, moist air to the ice sheet. So there was this large atmospheric river event, um, which brought record temperatures to the Concordia base uh, in East Antarctica, that was the highest temperature that they had ever recorded there in, I think, over 50 years of, of having uh, atmospheric measurements. Um, and within about two weeks of that happening, this ice shelf, this it's relatively small ice shelf, I think some few hundred kilometers uh, square. Um, that's small for Antarctica. Um, this ice shelf uh, also broke up uh, within a period of uh, a few weeks. Um, and we've only ever observed one other ice shelf collapse like that. So, so in 2002, there was a very famous um, ice shelf collapse called Larsen B Ice Shelf. And, and this was also observed by satellites. Um, which um, is part of the reason why it was so famous, because the pictures of its collapse were, you know, on the front pages of newspapers. Um, and this is an ice shelf that's about the size of that was about the size of Rhode Island, um, and it collapsed in uh, about five weeks. Um, again, after a very uh, unseasonably warm summer, right? So this is, you know, uh, an event that's occurring on really short time scales um, due to, you know, historically warm temperatures in the region, you know, that it's in. And these are, you know, things that are happening very quickly. Right. And so I think that's, you know, that kind of is one of the ways in which our field has, our thinking has evolved in the last 30 or so years that it was, you know, previously thought that ice sheets really don't change on timescales of, of less than like a few centuries, um, that they're relatively stable but when the Earth's climate changes, then they change slowly in response to that change in climate. And really, since we've had really good ways for looking at the polar regions, the hard to reach polar regions, 
you know, predominantly through satellites, what we've seen is that actually ice sheets are really dynamic places. And when the temperature starts to get warmer over them, they can undergo some, you know, very abrupt and catastrophic changes. Uh, what's the nature of the ice, you know, in the outer edge of a given glacier versus if you drill it into it internally? You know, how does it change and what's the implication for the structure of a glacier? Glaciers are kind of like layer cakes. So at the surface, you have kind of fresh snow. That's you know, sort of like the frosting analogy, the frosting of the glacier. Fresh snow is relatively, you know, is, is relatively light. So it has about, fresh snow has about one third of the density of glacier ice. And so when fresh snow falls, um, yeah, it's relatively light. It, it has a lot of pretty large pores in between the crystals of the snow, um, the grains of the snow. Um, and then over time, as more snow piles up on top of that in, in sort of year after year of snowfall, that relatively um, light snow gets compressed into what we call fern. Um, so fern is sort of an intermediate state um, between snow and glacier ice. And so it has something like twice the density of snow. It's, it's, it's a lot denser. The pores are a lot closer together. Um, and as snow turns into ice, or it turns into fern, um, the pores, and as the pores get smaller in between the, the grains of snow um, and the grains of fern, um, it locks in the uh, bubbles of air that were, you know, e existing at the time when that snow was deposited. Um, and so the, you know, many people in my field will go and they will drill these cores of ice out from ice sheets, you know, and some of these cores can go multiple kilometers down into the ice sheet, even until, you know, all the way through the ice sheet until they hit the solid earth. And the reason why they drill these cores is because as through this process of transformation from snow to fern, and then finally the glacier ice, uh, which has, you know, uh, is very dense, has triple the de density of, of fresh snow, the those gas molecule or those those gas bubbles get locked into the ice and then you can melt those, you know, that part of the ice and analyze the chemical composition of the gas that's released when you melt it. Um, and so this is a whole field of, of ice core geochemistry that people drill these cores and then they measure the composition as you go through the cores. And by measuring the composition, you not only know what was in the atmosphere, uh, what kind of gases were in the atmosphere at the time when that snow was deposited on the surface of the ice sheet, but also you could know things like what was the temperature of the atmosphere because certain isotopes of oxygen uh, change um, as the temperature at which uh, they were evaporated changes. Um, and you could also um, reconstruct things like uh, how much, how, how, what was the typical snowfall from year to year at the time when the snow was deposited. So this ice core science, you know, has now been around for for quite a while since the middle of the 20th century and it has really revolutionized the way that we understand earth's history so it tells us about the ice sheet but it also actually tells us a lot about the earth's climate over really long time scales like millions and millions of years time scales with the techniques like cryo em is there a way to keep the ice as ice and maybe make it even super cold the dry ice and prepare it you know to be used in a high power microscope to see its structure without melting it has anyone done that yeah, there, there's definitely a lot that's done 
usually usually the melting and then the analysis of it is sort of the last stage of the process so there's a lot that's done before you melt it and measure the chemical composition so yeah you can x-ray the ice core and you know that helps you to understand a lot of things you can sort of hit it with some ionizing radiation and, and that tells you a lot about the composition as well so yeah there's all kinds of techniques and honestly this is not an area that I, i'm a super expert in but over the last you know 60 or 70 years uh folks in the ice core community have developed like really amazing techniques to measure just about everything that you want to measure about the ice um both in non-destructive ways you know but also then ultimately you'll get the best information by actually measuring you know the content of what's inside you know, but a lot of the innovation has also been in being able to make measurements about the chemical composition with smaller and smaller samples, right? So there are these ice core repositories all over the world where they have these ice cores that were drilled like decades ago. And these are obviously, it, it is, as you can imagine, incredibly labor and time and cost intensive to go down to Antarctica and take a three kilometer long core of ice. Um, and so these cores are really used very conservatively and, you know, they can take very small strips out of them and make measurements of the chemical composition based on, you know, really, really small sample sizes, um, preserving most of the core for, for future science. And so, yeah, so there's definitely been uh, a lot of developments in, in techniques to, to make the most out of these, these ice core archives. Um, has anyone looked to see if there's uh, particular animals or fish that uh, live adjacent to the edge of a, of a glacier where it meets a body of water? You know, are there unique life forms that tend to hover right at the fringe there? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a whole subfield, uh, basically, of like polar marine ecology that is just looking at all of the biological communities that exist around and underneath ice. Um, so, yes, there are, you know, where... Glaciers come into contact with the ocean. The glaciers are melting, um, but they also are discharging water from their base um, because in places like Antarctica and Greenland, um, ice sheets have pervasive water at their base. Um, and depending on where that water comes from, it's been running through lots of mineral-rich soils and just could be in contact with, with bedrock with varying compositions. And so you have this very nutrient-rich water, which is being discharged at the edge of ice sheets, which, you know, critters love. Uh, and so these are really rich uh, biological communities around ice sheets um, that have all kinds of interesting and, and unique animals that are living there. Um, in, in recent years, um, the sort of exploration technology has gotten um, really great so that we now are sending robots um, underneath the the floating parts of ice sheets so in in places like antarctica you know you have these glaciers which are on the solid earth and then um, they're flowing towards the ocean and then when they meet the ocean um, they start floating and so you have these places where you have you know 500 meters of ice and underneath it you know you have another 500 meters of ocean uh, so these are called ice shelves um, and in the ocean cavities that are beneath these thick ice shelves you have these really, you know, unique biological organisms, you know, fish, all kinds of critters living on the seafloor, but also you have animals that are living in the ice right at the interface between the ice and the ocean. 
you know, where they can kind of really take advantage of the energetic differences between the ice community and the ocean community. Um, so you have all of these and in recent years we've been sending robots or, you know, people in my shield have been sending robots underneath the ice and with cameras on them. And then they see all of these amazing animals. Um, but some of the most amazing things I think that have been seen is that, um, uh, in the last decade or so, um, we've drilled into isolated lakes, um, underneath the, the grounded ice, right? So this is not uh, where you have floating ice on top of the ocean, like I was just talking about, but on the parts of the ice sheet that are like, you know, a hundred kilometers away from the ocean, right? So inland from the ocean, the ice is in contact, you know, with the solid earth underneath it. And in some places you have these subglacial lakes that exist underneath. Uh, we've known about these subglacial lakes for uh, you know a while now, for a few decades, um, but we're mapping more of them every year. And so you have these isolated lakes underneath ice sheets far away from the ocean. And in the last decade or so, the first expeditions drilled into these lakes and they found living things in these places and different living things than we really see from any other, you know, place on the surface of the earth, you know, because they have these, you know, really interesting, unique um, biological niches um, that, that don't exist really, really anywhere else. Um, and so we've learned a lot about biology um, and so, you know, how evolution occurs in these kinds of environments by looking at what, what kind of organisms live in these environments. Okay, well, very good. Uh, Alex, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, um, well, you can go to my group's website. Well, if you Google my name, I'm, I'm the first person that comes up. But the group that I run at Georgia Tech is the GT Ice and Climate Group. So if you Google that, you'll find my group's website and you can read all about our research and see videos and pictures of the kinds of things that we do. And then you can also find me on Twitter um, at Ice Climate and uh, where I talk about, you know, new papers that come out from my group and um, also what kinds of things my colleagues are working on. Um, so you can absolutely find me there and, and keep up with our work. Maybe a hundred on Twitter should be like Dr. Freeze or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I got to think of some more branding opportunities. I think. Dang on. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.